Okay, we're still talking about Ukraine. As you've probably noticed, the ongoing war in the Ukraine is pretty much absent from the front pages of the news these dog days of summer. It's all about the heat wave, you know, global warming. Never mind the hot war on the European continent. Many in the media may be bored or uninterested, but the terrible realities of that war continue. Even if you're not directly exposed to it, and very few of us are, the geopolitical and economic consequences are already impacting you and a lot of other people, pretty much the whole world, and it'll continue to do so. That's why in this episode, we're going to talk with a real expert on Ukraine, war fighting, security, technology, the intersection of all that. I'm pleased to have Steve Bryan join us to talk about it. You can find a lot about him in his storied career online. Of course, he's worked as a professor of government in the U.S. Senate, in the Pentagon, much more. He publishes frequently. He's written five books. And now in his ostensible retirement, he's a senior fellow at two, count them, two think tanks, the Center for Security Policy and the Yorktown Institute. And just to give you some uh, idea of his creds, he's been awarded twice the Defense Department's Distinguished Service Medal. That's their highest civilian honor. So we're going to talk to Steve about the state of play in Ukraine, about technology in Ukraine and war fighting, Elon Musk's Starlink, Russia's weaponizing its energy exports, and a lot more. One thing that we'll have to talk about another time off channel, maybe we'll talk about it. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it today, too, is that uh, I didn't realize in your uh, deep and varied background that we shared, and I should have known this, a couple of other uh, overlaps in the karma and kismet of the universe is that uh, I lived across the street from Lehigh University for several years. Oh, <laughs> in Southside or on the other side of the river? I lived in Old, Old Town, Bethlehem. Old and, Town, okay. And was uh, at the time uh, running a lithium battery factory, which has relevance to the geopolitics of our era. Sure does. And uh, went over to visit the folks there. And but you, you, uh, you, you were there in a much more um, elevated capacity than me as a professor. In fact, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Three, it's- 67 to 71. Well, it's a, it's one of those great engineering schools that, you know, America has so many of that aren't on the front pages. I mean, obviously the, the big names like MIT and Caltech and yeah. Cornell, but we have such great depth in engineering schools that. Uh, Ace Western. I mean, there's a lot of them, you know, yeah, uh, a- but Lehigh was quite a good school. And uh, in those days I taught, uh, political science. We called it government then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and never the twain shall meet. And never the twain did meet. Um, <laughs> and I uh, I introduced uh, uh, data analysis using computers, which was interesting because in those days, the university had one computer. Yeah. Well, in, in those days. Controlled data. I think it was yeah. 6,700, something like that. The world only had a few thousand computers in total, um, if you counted, you know, the, the what we would call mainframes back in the day. It was pretty, that pretty was interesting. Mainframe with a single hard drive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which was considered really advanced. 
and it crashed every now and then. And Hollerith cards, of course, in a computer center. So my students had to punch their data and then go down to the computer center. And I wrote a program in Fortran uh, for the for my students called Leaps. And a couple of years ago, I was uh, I met some people from Lehigh and we were yapping, and I said. You know, what did you do when you were like, well, I did this program called Leaps. I said, oh, yeah, we use that now. (laughs) (laughs) It's migrated. It's a statistical program, which is, I'd like to say it's very original. But in fact, I I used Berkeley Biotech statistical data package to derive from that a package for political science. And that's how I did it. Well, it's, as as you uh, know, and as as my listeners know, and of course, I'm constantly constantly referring to my book, The Cloud Revolution. A couple of the things I refer to in the book is the uh, how old some of the important core ideas are. What you what you did was take a, a key idea in statistical language and render it into utility in a machine. And of course, the revolution was that we took that machine, the computer, where we used to have to go, as I put it, we used to have to, you, the humans used to have to go to the machine and genuflect before it with boxes of cards of Fortran code. And now, and now the machines come to us in our pockets and that's a big improvement, but the core ideas are just uh, essentially the same. They've just been democratized and amplified, but that's not that's nothing. Right. That's right. And, and yep. programming has been made much, much easier than it has. In fact, ultimately, you know, natural language programming and all that. But, and the other overlap we have, of course, uh, which is relevant to our, I would, and all my listeners know that my political proclivities were imprinted on me by having been a very junior guy in the Reagan White House Science Office. And you too, and we didn't know each other then, That's were right. at a much more elevated position and post during the Reagan administration in the Defense Department. Uh, I, knew all- bo- I knew your boss there at the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Jay, Jay Keyworth. Yeah, Jay. He was a really good guy. It's terrific, terrific guy. Uh, terrific time. Uh, it, it, it imprinted me. I, doubtless it did you. But anyway, we should talk about the things of the day. And I, when I tell you what I'm, uh, what I told you I wanted to talk about, and what it's, what's interesting, of course, is the lessons we're we're learning, still learning, uh, relearning from the Ukraine war, the Rus- Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And its relevance, in particular, not just to geopolitics and the history of Russia, nature of warfare, but relevance to what I write and talk about a lot, which is technology and, and the technology of energy, technology generally, you know, cyber technology, weapons technology, and energy technology. But we, you know, we're we're getting a harsh lesson in some realities uh, because of this invasion, and you know, it's. I'm not surprising, but it's sort of sad that if you pick up the newspaper right now, as, as we as we write in this recent weeks, Ukraine's not often on the front page anymore. I mean, the war is still the hot war, still ongoing, but it's instead of being every day, it's the top of the fold news. Yeah. I mean, yesterday's newspapers didn't have, a, at least to my counting, didn't have a single mention on the front page of anything at all directly relating to Ukraine war. It did indirectly, you know, inflation. A cost of energy, the geopolitics of what Europe's on the brink of, uh, you know, economic inflationary chaos from high energy prices and fear of cutoff. That that's there, but not the proximate cause, which of course is what Putin is doing in Ukraine. Right. So I, we should talk about it. Uh, 
Let me start with asking you the, the generic question that will <laughs> you'll take a risk by answering it, but I know you'll answer it anyway. <laughs> let's let's start with your assessment and 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 my listeners know that you you your assessments come from deep knowledge, history, and expertise in this stuff. But let's just do the big big picture of as it stands today, high high level, the status, the state of play on that war, because it is a hot war. And uh, put this way, with the caveats, is is Russia is Russia winning or losing? You can define what you we mean by that first, and then secondly, um, you, you know, t- tell us tell us about that. And then also, again, this is a real a guess and a. When and when and how does it end? Right. Well, those are two good, <laughs> tough questions. I to, know. to say the least. I think that that right now, you know, what the Russians are trying to do is consolidate their position in the Donbass region, uh, eastern Ukraine, um, and I think they're looking to the south now, uh, areas from Kherson all the way across toward the Russian border uh, because they want to they want to also occupy they are already occupying a good part of it they want to take that area as well um, maybe Odessa but they're not fighting in Odessa although they've been rocketing it from time to time unless uh, we should add for our listeners who aren't looking at a map they should pull out or Google up a map Odessa is on the Black Sea uh, and it obviously it's a critical port but they occupy and hold or control every, everything pretty much to the uh, east of there. That's right. And, and then all the, all the ports on the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. Yeah. Uh, and, and of so course, that, if they got Odessa, they would close off Ukraine, becomes landlocked then, right? Uh, for sure. Yeah. That's and, and they have closed it off in the sense that uh, – the, the, the remaining ports in Ukrainian hands are, are blockaded by the Russian fleet yeah. in, the, in the Black Sea, which includes submarines. So, so that that's the on the ground situation. Uh, there is word now that the Russians are preparing to annex those areas to uh, uh, by holding a referendum probably in the fall, and uh, that's been confirmed now by the even by the the. Uh, uh, CIA and the Pentagon and the White House are saying the same thing. So, to be clear, anne- the, the annex would include Odessa. You, you think? Uh, no, well, that's we don't know what it would include actually. Yeah. Because, but they can't hold a referendum in Odessa if they don't occupy it. That's true. Yeah. So right now they don't occupy it. So um, no, I think it'll be all the other areas where they hold. You know, they've also been moving populations around. They have uh, put in Russian currency. Russian passports for the people, uh, Russian banking, all that stuff. So it looks very much like that's their objective. I don't that's think like, I don't think they'll do that for the two so-called republics, Luhansk and Donetsk, which will be independent. Uh, but I think they'll do that in the south. That's what it looks like. Yeah. So that's, that, that's that that you know the answer. The other part of your question was where does this all end? Yeah. Um, uh, Ukrainian uh, government uh, says they won't negotiate with the Russians until they leave. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> leave their territory. So, so in other words, they won't negotiate. They, that's been their position, actually, even after 2015, when they signed the agreement, the, the, these agreements were called the Minsk One and Minsk Two agreements. And the Ukrainians signed them and, and had agreed that there would be some form of autonomy for Donetsk and Luhansk. And, and, and by the way, Donetsk and Luhansk leaders also signed those agreements. Uh, and then they refused to negotiate that. So they've frozen it. And, 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 and it's one of the reasons that Putin decided to attack uh, and invade Ukraine. That was one of the reasons. There were actually two reasons. The other was that the Ukrainians had stepped up, the, the heavily stepped up the shelling of, of Donetsk uh, and Luhansk, which looked to the Russians like prep, uh, preparations to, uh, to for a major military operation. So they they preempted that. So yeah, what? anyway, I mean, so there's not going to be a negotiation right, right. now. So it's so it drags on. I mean, it's essentially there's no. I mean, the, the feeling right now is if I were paraphrasing it simplistically, because the details matter. And that's what I was point is they're off, they're off the front pages. No one really is following it. We don't seem to have a curious press on this, but the matter is serious as we'll get to in terms of other implications. They <laughs> don't have a our press is just repeating what they're told by the Ukrainians and right. by the White House. I mean, they're not, there's nothing, there's nothing in it that's worthwhile. It's very difficult to ferret out information because what we get is so biased and it's and one-sided. So it's it's tricky. And you know, it, this is true to be to be clinical about the reality. That's always the case in when there's war. There's propaganda besides control. But right now, and in the past, at least we I, I and it sounds like a, we don't want to digress into us uh, the question of the press and all the rest. But the it just certainly feels like we have far less of a press with. Uh, reporters that are are on the ground curious and, and putting news back that at least gives a broader view but the view that i would take from your analysis simplistically is it's a it's a much more complicated mess than the simplified view that's been presented so far never mind the one-sided part of it that's right and it's hard to assess uh, you know, if you want to know whether the russians will keep fighting or whether the ukrainians will keep fighting you really need to get a good idea of the, you know, the balance of forces and how, yeah. and you can't, it's yeah. just impossible. Some people have tried, there's, there's some independent outlets that, that pretend to do this, but I, I don't think they're very accurate. And that, you know, the problem here is we, the flip side, obviously the Russians put up propaganda, like this is <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> overused, no duh expression. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the extent to which we have Intel um, classified Intel overflights, satellite, all the rest that's classified is classified for a reason. Um, so getting getting accurate information in the public space, whether by leaking or, or good press is difficult. But the complexity, the fact that it's more complex than the simplistic worldview is really what I want to, to make clear. And you did that. And, they, and then, the, of course, the related part is that when you think about where the state of play is, the prospect of a, a near-term resolution seems a low probability. So it's sticky, messy for a, a well, while. There's, there's one wild card. Um, the wild card would be a change in the Ukraine government. Not Yeah, not a, not a change in the 
Russian government, because I think you've told me earlier off channel that the the chain of command from Putin on down are all all essentially share his worldview. It's not like there's a different worldview. Oh, it just gets harder, you know, tougher, <laughs> more nationalistic. It, yeah. it doesn't get less. Yeah. But uh, the, the Ukrainian government is under a lot of pressure because of casualties and because, yeah. you know, a stalemate doesn't serve their interests um, and they don't have the ability in my opinion, they don't have the ability to to change the, their position and military position and to to recover the land that they've lost. Um, and at some point, the bleeding is bound to uh, is bound to cause a, enough of a reaction in Ukraine to force a governmental change. That's a my that's a wild card. It's not for sure. Uh, uh, and that wild card, though, is is uh, brings us sort of the topic we've talked a lot about, but and I've talked to my podcast about is the asymmetry in uh, the two domains of what this, you know, the features, I'll call them the technology features of this war. One is the capacity for Russia to have enough revenue to keep war fighting, which is almost entirely energy related, energy export related, right. and, and which Ukraine doesn't have that feature, obviously. And the inverse, of course, is that what Ukraine has, uh, is money and weapons being supplied by the West to them to engage in, if not an insurgency, defense, maybe attack. So it's the, the two the two spaces are heavily technology in, uh, dominated. Uh, and I want to talk about both those. Okay. We'll come back to the energy one in a minute because that one that one has to do obviously with money flows and what Europe ultimately does or doesn't do or is able to do. But let's let's talk about the stay with the war fighting, because you wrote a piece and I'll link this um, at the podcast you know, website so that people can find it. You wrote you wrote a piece that uh, that echoed something I wrote about as well. You wrote it, of course, from a much more expert perspective, I would say. Well, people can read your bio. They'll know what I'm talking about. But you, you wrote about the uh, this. This specific war, set aside how horrific it is. I mean, obviously, it's stipulate the civilian casualties are, never mind the military casualties, civilian casualties are terrible. It's what shocked people to have a ground war on Europe again. But the this is the first hot war, not 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 a sort of a, you know, a, a, a covert use or an episodic, but a hot war where drones History may see this as the first time drones have been used uh, broadly and effectively in a hot war, much as the you know Gulf War One was really when history marked the first. Don't forget Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh was a major demonstration of the use of uh, drones uh, very effectively against uh, from the Azerbaijanis used them very effectively against uh, uh, in, in that uh, fight, uh, both uh, Turkish ones and Israeli uh, suicide drones and and surveillance drones. So it, it actually uh, presages what we've seen in Ukraine. Right. It was, but that was a, uh, you know, sort of. There's always a uh, a predicate, right? When you 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 figure these things out, and of course, drones have been around for a while. Not least the Predator drone, which has a long and storied history. Yes, but the. The uh, this this is sort of a an old fashioned well, it's, it's old fashioned is probably the wrong word, but given amount of tanks and ground, it's much heavier from the point of view of armor. Yeah, but the terrain is very different too because uh, 
the Azerbaijan-Armenia fight was over very rough terrain, mountainous terrain, whereas there's a lot of flatlands in Ukraine, so, you know, grain-growing areas. And so there's lots of places to, to, to classically use armor, although it's very interesting that armor has not performed very well, very well at all, and right. the losses have been horrendous on both sides. Shockingly, talking about technology, if I can mention that, um, the Russian equipment is pretty backward. It, it was really missing key capabilities that the Russians had claimed they did have, but turns out they didn't didn't which, have. Which capability is that, Steve? Um, well, two in particular: uh, advanced uh, reactive armor, yeah, the newest type, which the Russians have, but they didn't have it on their T seventy threes and T-80s used in, in the war, and, and then uh, active defense on top of the tanks that can defeat anti-tank missiles, which the Israelis have developed, and, and even we're now using the Israeli one, by the way. Um, and the Russians claim they had developed a system called Arena-M to do that, but it's not found on any of the tanks in Ukraine, which is pretty shocking. It is. So, and to, so to help people with the, the terminology who, don't, who aren't as in the weeds as you and I are on Weapon systems or so rea- reactive armor. I mean, if you think about armor on a tank or any or anything, uh, uh, passive armor would be would be simplistic. If you, you build a thick enough uh, concrete or steel uh, walls, it's hard to penetrate it. So that's just passive defense. And and of course, you can make a bunker like that, but having something move like that gets hard. So what you you do is you create kind of material that actively does stuff you know the, the materials that are quote, Explo- actually explodes in a, a, a and tries to push the weapon away from the tank hull exactly so the the energy of the the armor exploding creates a force and of course repels the incoming force so it's active a reactive armor cool yeah. stuff it's cool and stuff. then yeah. and then similar and we have that of course and uh, that's israel and then the then having um, both radar and visual active systems, including AI, right? You can watch watch incoming missiles, see them, find them, target them, and then shoot them down. Uh, this this is you know classic missile defense. Russians claim they had good stuff on their tanks. Apparently, not so good. Not even uh, there. I mean, yeah, exactly. Absent, <laughs> absent, and uh, so that so we learned that that was genuine. Um, uh, propaganda, <laughs> first order. Well, I, you know, I'm not completely clear about it. I, I think there's two possibilities. One is that while they advertised it, it didn't really work very well, so they never deployed it. Yeah. And the other is they lacked the industrial base to manufacture it, which I think is also quite likely. Well, yeah, in fact, in that point, they may, they may in fact have had it, to your point, built it, had prototypes, they were commercializable, but they couldn't commercialize it at scale. Yeah, uh, I think the, that's what happened. Yeah. So their engineers and scientists, as you and I know, are world class. They're brilliant. But rendering the product, any technology into a device is where the manufacturing infrastructure comes in. And they're, they're notoriously challenged in that. But we'll come back, though, though to what, what's going on is that with we, you know, we've been writing about, I've been writing about, I'm sure you, you know you have, and we've always been talking about the the advent of using drones, especially with predicate examples in isolated or, you know, we'll call it um, limited war fighting in, in the last decade. Now, here we are in a hot war where two things came together, which I've always 
to believe were, of course, the key, we, you know, is that you not only have drones got got cheaper, easier, more capable, but you have to communicate and target the drones, right? You have to have a system and here and enter Elon Musk of all people and Starlink and the, the marriage of uh, Starlink giving real-time communications to the front lines of the uh, Ukrainian troops with drones it's been a pretty significant game changer and you that's the piece I want to link to but help help uh, before we go before we go to to the where, where Putin's going to get money and Ukraine can't <laughs> easily <laughs> and the scales are separated by orders of magnitude we, we can't give Ukraine the amount of money that Russia earns from selling uh, energy to the captive states of the rest of Europe but that back to the Starlink it's fascinating how effective that's been, how important it's been. Uh, right. You know, walk us, walk us through what your, well, your Starlink is, 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 is micro satellites. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's quite brilliant, actually. Uh, you know, we were, t- I used to be on the, the board of uh, the rail space systems years ago, and we were talking about micro satellites, but we couldn't make them. Um, now you can make them. And, uh, Elon Musk, I think he's the most important uh, industrialist and and uh, in 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 the world today. I, I think you're right. Let, let's let's define terms again, so people don't really appreciate who haven't been around a space business that satellites from the dawn of the satellite era to to very recently are, are multi-ton can be weigh tons. I mean, they're, they're huge. Big. Yeah. Huge things. So you think big, big rockets, and you put one of them up. One satellite can cost well. At the, some of the military satellites can cost a billion dollars or more each. Um, commercial satellites can cost hundreds of millions to a billion, and you spend hundreds of millions of dollars launching them. And it's very hard to make the capabilities of satellites small. Then you, then we got this era of uh, combination of material science, in my opinion, and, co- and computation capabilities. All the rest converge. Make satellites, you know, the size of toaster ovens um, or smaller satellites, <laughs> and smaller and smaller. Yeah. Is yeah, he launched uh, just uh, on the 22nd of July, another 46 satellites. On a single launch. On a exactly. single launch on SpaceX, which he also owns. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, has, he has the whole business. So he makes the satellites. And by the way, he makes them. I think he's making like 40 or 50 a week. I mean, it's unbelievable, the output of his factory. Um, and, and then he launches them on his spacecraft yeah, and Falcon, it, Falcon spacecraft, which is and the, amazing. Exactly. And the spacecraft comes back and lands on a pad or at sea and they bring it back and re- clean it up and use it again. You know, I've, I've often written and, and said and believe that setting aside all the politics of what, uh, which infuse everything for good reason, Elon Musk is uh, as remarkable uh, history. We see him as a remarkable uh, industrialist, to, to, for exactly the reasons you point out, he's tackling the very hard things, uh, building building physical stuff from spaceships and cars to the batteries, all non non trivial. But I, I I think you know the fact that Starlink will ultimately have thousands. I think it's the number is, if I recall correctly, thirty or forty thousand satellites in the fleet when it finally. No, no, no not that much. Right now, I think it's a little bit less than three thousand. Right, and the goal is ten x that to get That's right. exactly. Yeah. And but let's come back. So now here you are with the low altitude satellites that have another feature. I mean, it means where you don't have, quote, cell service. You have a Starlink terminal, which itself is very small. Mm-hmm. And you got you got Internet. 
communications capability. Well, you have high-speed internet, which, yeah. is, uh, you know, because all the stuff that came before, like the Global Star, for example, were, were okay, but they couldn't do high-speed imagery or anything like that. They couldn't do streaming. But, you know, for now, for $110 for the, the equipment and $599 for the receiver, one-time charge, 110 a month to, to buy the service, you have a full... Uh, complete uh, high-speed internet, uh, uh, more than enough to support just about anything you can do today with your computer. And of course, well, with, with streaming video yeah. and a drone, you can now watch your target. You can, uh, you can see and do things that, of course, are critical that were popular in science fiction movies for years, but now you've democratized that. And of course, he donated that, as, you, as we both know, to, uh, to Ukraine, activated the service. Right. And by linking that, to their drones, this is really incredibly powerfully weaponized uh, the, the defense capabilities of the Ukrainian military. And, and linking it from the drones, not only to the command centers, but to the weapons. Exactly. That's my point, the weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really, it's very well done. And it's interesting, there, there's, there's some ironies in this. And the, the Russians destroyed the cell towers in Ukraine. Yep. Uh, which because they wanted to deny this capability to the Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah. They also denied it to themselves. Because <laughs> <laughs> they don't have Starlink. I mean, it's hilarious. I thought it was just such, an, such a delicious irony. Well, it's even better because the Russians invented a new kind of secure combat or uh, tactical telephone. It's like a cell phone. Yeah. They worked on the, you know, on the cell phone networks called ERA, <laughs> U-R-A. Uh, they couldn't make it work in Ukraine because there were no more. They had destroyed the cell towers. And and to add to insult to injury here, and again, it's relevant. And it takes us to another aspect of this technology uh, infusion in the war. Is that they apparently or reportedly want to jam and hack Starlink? Right, that's what you would do if you can't. You, you've got this new uh, weaponized capability on your and on the other counterparty. You want to well, jam it or pack it. And uh, again, kudos to Musk's team. Uh, evidently, uh, the vaunted Russian hackers can't do that. They haven't been able to be successful. No, point. because there's thousands of satellites and, and uh, you know, and, and they're in a web so that one, one can take the place of another one, you know, that right. kind of thing. Uh, automatic, like a cell phone network works, but even better. Uh, so it's a, it's a very clever, and that's AI. You know, that's using artificial intelligence and signal management, uh, uh, optimizations, all these things, which it's doing very well. So, so he sent five thousand terminals initially. I think it's now up to around ten thousand that have been delivered to Ukraine, uh, and and he didn't charge for it. He just did it. I know this is the. I mean, of course, the serious part for Elon Musk, and this is not. I don't mean this is a. Yeah, you know, we, we don't want to go off on a tangent and become uh, Mus uh, musketeers. Uh, yeah, musketeer. That's a good line. I'm going to use that one, Steve. Uh, it, it, this is not about loving Elon Musk per se. It's just about it's amazing to think about this uh, transformation. Of course, what you just said epitomizes back to my self-promotion of my book. <laughs> the, it's the intersection of the three things that are going on right now that are transformational. The power of AI to allow a dynamic mesh network, communications network, uh, is, is, is itself transformational, but it's married to the physical materiality of 
ability to launch, create and launch microsatellites by the thousands, not right. by the, by one or two, and and that too linked to the, the reality of that computational capabilities itself, the 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 computer uh, embedded in a drone and the image systems are the kinds of things that were in science fiction 20 years ago, but you couldn't build them. Now, now, now they're deployed by the Well, thousands. you know, there's another aspect to this. How come the United States isn't using Musk's system in military, I mean? <laughs> don't, don't, don't put, uh, we could, we're not, we could do a separate podcast about... I mean, this is the sort of thing that, that makes your hair fall out because... Yeah. Uh, mine already did thinking about it. Yeah, well, mine too. But the, here's a commercial development that is absolutely stunning. Yeah, absolutely stunning, and it's well, che- it's cheap. Yeah, this you know I I've written, in fact, often with one of my sons who writes on these the history, philosophy of technology, evolution of science. I've written about this exactly this phenomenon. If you look back at the the iconic wars, World War One and World War Two, and the claims that the technologies were invented by the government at that time, the the predicates uh, were were essentially all in the private sector. Government's been a big role during war fighting, but the the toolkit was created in the private sector and then weaponized. Typically, there are exceptions, but the exceptions are are the exceptions; they're not the rule. Yeah, well, I mean, the commercial has paced. Yeah, sorry, development now for forty more than forty years. Oh yeah, a long time. But you know, so let's let's uh, you know switch gears to the related thing because here's here's the U.S. Of course, Israel and other nations, some in Europe, <laughs> I think increasingly less so. Which you want to talk about providing money and technology and weapons to the Ukrainians, but these are essentially gifts. The Ukrainians do not have the capacity to pay for this stuff. That's right. In fact, if, if, if not when, but if not, if, but when, I mean, the war will eventually end in some fashion, whatever the fashion is. I mean, who knows if it's an insurgency kind of Afghan situation going on for years or whether you say there's a new government and there's a settlement and whatever happens. But in the meantime, um, what Europe, Europe is in a, in a pickle here because uh, and most people know this and I've talked about it before. You know, it is that, you know, Russia is, one of the biggest exporters of oil and gas to the world. I mean, they're one of the three big producers. They don't use very much because it's a tiny economy. I mean, their economy is smaller than the state of California's GDP. Right. But they produce order of magnitude as much oil and gas as in America and Saudi Arabia. And so it's essentially all for exports, you know, vast majority. And the, the largest buyers of their oil and gas are the European nations, notably Germany, but all of them collectively. And they can't, they, they're struggling um, epically to try to delink. But the reality is the time it'll take, the scales that are dependencies are, are making it impossible to delink. So I, this, this to me has illuminated the a different technology issue and, and sort of a naivete, as you know, I believe and write about, of the velocity of technology to change the energy game. Putin and his team knew this. They knew once they got Europe deeply dependent on their gas and oil, especially their natural gas, that there weren't many options that could be affected quickly, certainly not at the velocities that wars are fought. And so here they are, uh, this fiction that windmills and solar panels and electric cars would de-link dependencies on hydrocarbons, especially Russian hydrocarbons, didn't happen. 
isn't happening at a velocity that matters. This, in fact, we know as a fact that despite slight lower exports and lower production right now, maybe it's down 10 or 20%, might be slightly more. Putin's actually getting more money because of, of inflation and prices than he had before the war started that's, on revenues. That's so right. He, 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 that technology is giving him very long legs, not infinitely long legs, long enough legs to really make a mess out of the situation. On it. I guess my question to you is not that whether you and I agree on this, obviously, it's you and I both agree, is how do you how do you see this playing out uh, given what's going on now in the European theater? Not not so much the U.S., but that matters. But how do you see it playing out? Do you do you see a realpolitik as of the world I, I, I resurrected coming to Europe on this and and therefore impacting how they negotiate no. whatever the resolution is? No, I think they're going to, as we say in French, they're between a rock and a hard place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a very hard place. <laughs> a very hard place. <laughs> Uh, no, I think that the Russians believe they have a score to settle with NATO because they consider the Ukraine war a NATO war. Uh, and there's a lot to support that thesis. And so I think when when the weather starts to turn bad in the late fall, the Russians are going to squeeze the Europeans unbelievably hard on oil, oil and gas, especially gas. And I think that then the European consensus will fracture. Yeah. It's not fractured already. Yeah. And that means that the NATO consensus will totally fracture. And I think the Russians, the Russian revenge is coming that way. Um, and I don't think it's much we can do about it, to be honest with you, except one thing. There is one thing we can do, but, you know, Biden administration is not, not in the mood to do it. And that is to tell the Ukrainians time to make a deal with the Russians. That's the only way out of this mess. Yeah, uh, and and of course, if the Europeans unilaterally decide to negotiate differently than the United States, uh, that that not there's not only not much we can do about it. That that to your point fractures NATO because there's that that creates a NATO crisis, a sort of sort of a form of constitutional crisis in NATO. That's right, and the Russians want that to happen because and, and, they're very angry, very angry. It's an understatement of the year. They're very angry with NATO and with Washington, of course, which they consider behind the whole thing, the conspiracy to destroy Russia. And, and when people like uh, our Secretary of Defense say, you know, we want to bleed Russia until it's bled out, uh, which is what Lloyd Austin says, yeah. it, it doesn't play real well in Moscow. Well, it's also because uh, not particularly and I don't mean to use an insulting word. It's not. Let's just say it's not helpful in the geopolitics and the negotiations. But and, and observing these things, you know, a lot of people uh, make a, a cartoonish kind of uh, reactions to what you just said, which is an obvious fact, right? It's not that one has to agree with, sympathize with Russia's position and what they did, but you have to recognize how they see the world. Yeah, if in any kind of conflict, whether it's a hot war or a cold war, if you don't understand how your enemy thinks. No, you're you, making a mistake then. Boy, yeah. Big mistakes. And we, we're, we're engaging in a very cartoonish debate right now in the United States on this. And it comes from a combination, set aside the absence of seriousness on much media, not all, but much, maybe most. The, the soft power negotiating 
realities of what technology does in energy are really what's been uh, x-rayed by what's going on. Yes. And, and I think, in fact, I, I've said, I think this, the risk is not only that we'll, and what Putin wants is to fracture NATO uh, and to fracture the, uh, the sort of the, the relationship between NATO and the United, you know, Europe and the United States to his benefit. Mm-hmm. But it's also uh, going to fracture, and, and I, this is a good thing in my view, <laughs> it's going to fracture the fiction that we can uh, fuel the world uh, with you know, magic technologies of you know, EVs and wind and solar. Not that they're not important, but th- this whole idea that this is the way to go and go faster, which has been reinforced in Europe and, and, and in the United States by the conflict, it, it, it's going to fall apart, but they're, not, they're fighting it. And I agree with you. I think it doesn't fall apart until another level of crisis is hit. And the world at roughly $100 oil and where gas, natural gas prices are now is very unpleasant, but it's not, quote, shocking. We haven't had an energy shock, as, as I've written recently. You know, an energy shock is when the price goes up two to 400%, which is what happened last time we had shocks. Right. That would be shocking. And I think when it comes to natural gas, especially, it's probably oil. Putin could engineer that much as the Saudis engineered just exactly that kind of shock in 73, 74, right. which people have forgotten about. Boy, would that change the... Uh, I remember that real well. I mean, standing in line at the gas station and on odd or even days, depending on your license plate, when you could buy gas and if you did, you know, all that stuff was uh, very, very dangerous, it seemed to me. And of course, the voluntary rationing is being talked about in Europe right now. This is... That this never is works. Yeah, of course it doesn't. <laughs> In fact, I, I, I saw a news item where the Spanish government responded to EU saying that everybody needs to conserve gas now to help Germany. And um, they basically <laughs> gave a geopolitical finger to the EU saying, hey, we've been behaving down here in Spain. Uh, Germany can deal with its own problems. So I don't know. This might even fracture the EU. Who knows? It's quite possible. I mean, look, we, this thing goes back a long way. In the 80s. I was uh, in the Pentagon working to try and block the Yamal pipeline from being built. And we pleaded with the Europeans then, you're going to be dependent on Russian gas. It's very dangerous. Don't do it. And they paid no attention. In fact, they paid the opposite attention. They went ahead. Well, we can, we can do a more recent uh, political fact. And again, this will sound like uh, a partisan observation. This is just a historic, historical observation. When... Uh, Former President Trump gave the speech, as you know, at the UN uh, opposing the Gazprom 2 pipeline mm. because of its increased dependencies on Russia. The German delegation was caught on camera snickering and laughing and giggling at this uh, buffoon, uh, uh, buffoonish uh, claim. Uh, what, you know, uh, history has rendered embarrassingly quickly how, uh, well, how feckless that kind of view view was that we don't we don't have to worry about Russian dependencies. Let, let, let's let's switch to a different related technology, and it, it does directly relate to the Russian energy tech and warfare. So we 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 in the West and all over the world talking about increasing uh, Europe to help delink from Russian energy, especially Russian natural gas, by using our natural gas and our export infrastructures and capabilities. And lo and behold, we have these, you know, accidents and fires breaking out at LNG export facilities that were exporting fuel to 
Europe. And, and many people wrote, not many, some people wrote in, in the technical literature that they were concerned that this might actually be an example of cyber warfare on the part of the, the Russians, could be others, could be Iranians meddling, who knows, uh, to attack the physical infrastructure of our energy exports. Now, you and I both know what the public view on this is and what the ostensible consensus is that it was actually an accident, not cyber warfare. Let, color me skeptical that it's impossible that it was a cyber attack, but let's just, let's just stipulate that we know for a fact that cyber attacks and physical infrastructure have happened and are doable because we've done it, let's just say, in the other direction, the famous Stuxnet attack on yes. the Iranian physical centrifuges, to think that the inverse isn't being tried or might not have happened is be profoundly naive. Yes, I think so. And the Chinese, of course, doing it too. Um, but I think there's, there's a great worry about the vulnerability of our whole critical infrastructure, not just energy, but everything else, uh, even military, uh, which all depend on computerization and industrial uh, control systems that are all commercial. Everything's commercial. Yeah, this is this is um, I you know, and I it, there's been some coverage on this in the press, and not a lot, but I, but I, I do think, and maybe you have some access to inside knowledge. I do think what's going on has been a wake up call to the security community and to think to take more serious. Even though there's been a lot in the press about cybersecurity, I, 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 I think, and I hope it's my thinking about this is correct. It, it's elevated. The concern about this that we'll, we'll we'll take it even more seriously than we have. Well, it probably is elevated concern because they keep plowing a lot of money into cybersecurity uh, uh, technology and cybersecurity operations to try and uh, harden. Uh, for example, the defense industrial base. There's some hardening effort going on right now. Um, it's sort of after the horses have run out of the barn, though, because. <laughs> Well, uh, they've already cleaned us out. <laughs> <laughs> they've already they're already embedded. Uh, yeah. Well, it, 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 this is, um, you know, uh, some as you all know, my uh, my podcast is called The Last Optimist. Um, so nice and, have, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and we have we have been talking about uh, things that are decidedly not optimistic, yes. uh, except I, I would say uh, to wrap up maybe on a. Uh, a more positive note, because you you observed that um, the state of the Russians' capabilities were a lot poorer than we even believed, and that's that's a sort of the inverse form of optimism. I mean, as 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 difficult as as let's just say as messed up as we are, it it may be that they're far more messed up than we are. In which in which case, that's an optimistic take on how the outcome. No, I, I agree with out. you. I think that's true, and I think the the Russians suffer from a very limited uh, capability, industrial capability, especially in the high tech area, uh, because they lack the industrial base to support it, and, and that's a big deficit for them. And then, of course, I think the other factor is that it's a very corrupt country, um, and that if that plays in the military as much as it plays everywhere else. Yeah, and and this is this is the sort of the reality of how the real world works out. It's not that. You know, it's a, a version of, I think, what Churchill said is that, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm, you may know the exact quote, is that after trying everything else, it does it fails. Uh, America eventually gets the right thing done correctly after all the other mistakes 
And well, that's it. We were pretty resilient at the end of the day. Um, and certainly, I mean, we were very lucky in World War II because uh, we had the industrial base. It just needed to be redirected. Uh, the problem today is we don't. Yeah, well, we have we, we have a rotor industrial base, but I think our ability to reanimate it is probably superior to any other nation. So this 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 will take us into the into the into the sphere of politics and how that happens. But we, we'll leave that for we will definitely leave that for another day. Okay. <laughs> it's been uh, it's been <clears throat> uh, interesting, and uh, I hope helpful for our, our listeners to think in, about a little more broadly of the state of play in the intersections of technology, geopolitics, war fighting that we're facing now, sort of a almost a new, uh, it's not a cold war as much as maybe a lukewarm war because of what's going on in Ukraine, but I hope it doesn't get warmer. That's my, my hope. I agree with you completely. Let's, let's hope that's true. And thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's been an absolute delight. Good to talk to you. Enjoy more of the summer. Let's hope the news gets more pleasant in yes. the coming months. Thanks, Steve. And that's it for this episode. It's been a real pleasure and fascinating to have Steve Bryan join. Uh, as you could probably have noticed, I, it's tempting to get down in the weeds of uh, military technology. It takes me back to my early career, but I hope uh, it was clear to all you all. Uh, important stuff. And as always, if you enjoy these podcasts, please, please give us a rating. Positive one, of course, in the usual places. And, and, and always feel free to email me with questions, ideas, objections, recommendations. Until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for The Last Optimist. Optimist.